This is We Are Netflix, Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. You learn the most and you're most stimulated when you have incredible colleagues and incredible both in their specific skills and also in their teamwork abilities. That sounds great, but how do you make it happen? How do you build an organization that lets individuals be individuals, but also fosters great collaboration that encourages independence and creativity while helping people learn from each other and work together toward a common goal? Those are some of the questions at the heart of a new book, No Rules, Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. It's co-written by Netflix CEO and co-founder Reed Hastings and best-selling author Aaron Meyer. The book, which is coming out in September, is an inside look at the culture of Netflix and how it came to be. It's structured as a back and forth between Reed, who describes the principles that shape Netflix, and Aaron, who explores the reality of working here based on interviews with more than 200 past and present Netflix employees. I'm Lyle Troxell, and on this episode of We Are Netflix, we'll get a sneak peek at the book from Reed Hastings himself. I've been at Netflix for about six years, immersed in this culture. But reading this book got me thinking about these ideas more deeply than ever before, in a way that only books can do. And getting a chance to sit down and talk with Reed about it was a real pleasure. And just a note here that we recorded this conversation back in early March, before the COVID-19 pandemic came to a head in the U.S., and before the shelter-in-place orders that have had such a big impact on our life and work here. That's why you won't hear us talk about the coronavirus. Okay, so I just finished your book this morning, really, the last right. chapter. As a Netflix employee, of course, I know a lot of this content already. I'm living this life for the last six years. The thing that I, I think is interesting about it is that this culture is like one of the major reasons we succeed. And you're just giving it away to people. You're just telling everybody else how to do it. Are you concerned about the competition aspect of empowering our competitors with this way of doing business? The reason that I wrote the book is because I've learned so much from other people's books over the last 30 years. Different leaders who took the time to share what they've learned. And it's only because of all of their contributions that we were able to build Netflix. So for me, it's sort of paying it forward precisely so that other companies can adopt these ideas. When Erin interviewed the 200 people, the journey in the book about her realizing how much what you were saying with the company was like and hearing it from all throughout the company um, and people outside the company, that's an, a very transparent way to write a book like this. Um, it fits our culture in some ways. Was the process of writing the book very much like the book uh, espouses? The structure of the book came from when I've read other leaders' books. Sometimes I wonder, yeah, what's the reality? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I thought, okay, a great tension and a good device is to have me talk about the theory and then Aaron talk about the reality. And it's precisely that tension that makes it readable. You mentioned actually having a lot of conversations with the different people across the company. How do you decide who you're going to talk to and how are you going to get a pulse and, and put all those hundreds of hours that you do every month to talking with individuals? You know, the key, I think, to doing a great job at inspiring people is to understand them and to have a sense of what's going on. And because I'm not trying to manage all the day-to-day, -day, I'm not involved in tons of other meetings. I've got, you know, the opportunity to uh, meet with people broadly around the company and try to figure out what things are working well, what things uh, need improvement. As an employee, I kind of understand the culture. Everything was very familiar to me, um, though at the same time, rejuvenatingly inspirational in some ways. Like, oh, I can do better at that. 
Um, so it's been fun to read in that perspective. But why don't you give me the elevator pitch of the book? For the last 300 years, most of the economic growth of the world has been powered by industrialization, factories that can repeatedly create you know, a million cars without an error, a million doses of penicillin, a million t-shirts. So the skill sets of reducing error and manufacturing prowess, again, have driven the economy for the last 300 years. You know, that's great, but that, that mindset of that top-down, reduce error, how you run a factory, how you run the military, how you run a church has, you know, become the dominant paradigm. And again, it works if you want to replicate things at great scale. Mm. But if you want to stimulate creativity, which is a lot of making a lot of mistakes and those kinds of things, then it's a different model. And the creative side of the economy has always been there, but it's been quite small, maybe like it was just ad agencies 100 years ago. And now it's much broader. And so we need a complete rethink of our basic models of how we support creativity. And that's what we're trying to learn, which is how do you organize yourself if it's not about error prevention, if it is about learning and making mistakes and being creative. It's not a solution for everything. You see the benefit of that organized, controlled structure in some situations. Yeah, error reduction is very important in many types of uh, organizations. And then creativity and trial and error is important in other types, creative types. But the creative types have grown a lot in the last 50 years. And so we're on the early edge of trying to figure out, okay, how does that shift our paradigms? For example, the role of the leaders about inspiring rather than managing. This is a historic look at how we define the culture we currently are living in at Netflix. And we need a little bit of context for that. So describe to me why really candor in feedback to people is so useful. Well, we want people to learn a lot. And what stimulates learning is the feedback. And humans have adjusted to being very careful um, so they don't piss people off. And that's appropriate in most situations. You don't and want to get alienated from the group. That's right. Yeah. And so we want to get people to realize if it's about helping each other, you have wide license to be honest. And that's up and down crosswise. And then that stimulates more learning. So it's, it's really about seeking excellence and how do we become as great as we can be. And helping other people do that by showing them some things they need to work on. In general, what you're trying to do is change the cultural norms. The cultural norms of society are, you know, don't criticize your elders and, you know, it's very dangerous to criticize your bosses. And instead, we want to make it very healthy for everyone to be providing feedback all around and to make that feel like a normal part. And it's certain types of feedback. So it would not be, for example, how you're dressed or how um, you're eating or something. It's really around the professional conduct. Yeah. And you go into a lot of examples in the book, which I appreciate. So I've heard the story, I think a lot of us have heard the story of you getting a $40 late fee on a DVD rental, probably in Santa Cruz DVD store that I've been to. Uh, I always imagined when I was there that that was the one. But that going, wait, this, this got to be a better way and launching DVD by, by mail. When you were planning that, when you were thinking about doing that, did you always assume there would be streaming? Yeah, I had the early fortune to go to computer science graduate school, and you, there's a classic textbook, Tenenbaum's networking book, and it asks you to calculate how fast is the network, what's the bandwidth of a station wagon filled with backup tapes driving across the country. 
It's massive. And it turns out it's massive. <laughs> sure? yeah. network with high latency for any one piece of information. It takes three days to get it across the country. Yeah. But it makes you think about networks differently. And when someone told me about DVD and it held five gigabytes and you could mail it, you know, for one stamp, um, I realized, oh, my God, that's the station wagon. Yeah, you were whisked right back to that class. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you knew right away that it was going to be that. But did you know when you were starting out, when you were asked people to join and stuff, was that part of the dialogue you were having with people? We were going to do the streaming at some point? Yeah, DVD by mail, which was really our main business for the first 10 years, kind of 98 to 2008. We always knew it was temporary, which is why we named the company Netflix and not DVDbymail.com. By any measure of pure software, your, your first company prior to the, for Netflix, you were highly successful in the sense that you sold and made money on it, right? So in the business perspective, that was success. And that I get that you were already starting to think about different ways of running a business during pure software. In fact, even showing your selflessness of saying to your board, let go of me, I think somebody else do a better job. Why did you know that even though that was relatively successful for most metrics, you needed to do something different when you ran Netflix? How did you make that transition? So my first company, which was 1991 to 1997, we started off great. We had some great products and a very open, creative culture. But I was trained as an engineer, and every time something went wrong, I put a process in place to try to not have that error happen again. And I viewed it as this intricate machine. If you could have enough of the correct processes, you could establish amazing things because I hated when something went wrong. Just like software building in some ways, right? Yeah. And then over time, what I came to realize is by putting all that process in place, there was two things. One is the value system of what a successful employee was, was someone who followed process. Mm -hmm. And they were good at, at adherence and not as much about thinking or creating or, you know, being independent, being sure. a maverick thinker. And second, the most creative people didn't want to put up with all that stuff. And so they left. And the subtle thing is in the short term, you do quite well because you're optimizing a business model that's working. But eventually, all business models change. In that case, it was C++ to Java. It didn't matter exactly what it was. And um, we ended up having to sell the company to our largest competitor. Um, so you market as a failure at some level? It was not the great success. It did not continue to innovate for the next 100 years. And that was because, again, this rigidity. And what I realized is, oh, if you do the short-term optimization, then process is quite good. But that doesn't optimize for the long term where you really want to have flexibility. So efficiency is a tension with flexibility. So if you're over a hardcore about achieving efficiency, you lose a lot of flexibility. Why was a metric for you a long-term innovation over time? That's not necessarily a business metric. You could have a, a business where you spin up a software company, make a lot of control over it, make it compelling to another company and sell it and just keep doing that. That's right. So those are the classic product masquerading as a company. Yeah. So why was that compelling to you? Well, it wasn't that. I was always more interested in ongoing innovation and creating a system of people that worked well together to create an event together. How much did these these ideas fulminate before you started Netflix? Like when you were watching that movie, they got a late fee. You know, when, when was the period that you were like, if I do this again, I'm going to do this differently? Really came a couple of years later when we started Netflix. It was the first internet bubble, easy to raise money. It's 1998, 1999. And we lost a lot of money, but you could always raise a lot more. 
And then the bubble crashed in 2001, and we realized, oh my God, we're going to run out of money here. Um, and we had to do a big layoff. This is that, that crucial point where you get to rethink what we're going to do at the company, yeah? Yeah, but we really didn't, I mean, the event happened, and the short version is, although we lost a third of our people, we held on to the 80 people that we thought were the most effective, both team players and at their role. And it made us actually a better company, even though we had less people. But it's not like that day then we started saying, oh, we should focus on culture. It's because, again, we were just focused on survival. Yeah. We thought we might have to lay off another 40, you know. And so then over the next year, we got more and more successful. We were able to go public in 2002. And that's when we really started work. Wow, we're going to survive commercially. So let's try to, you know, think about what we be explicit about what kind of culture we want. Throughout that process of deciding to do the layout, your partner in a lot of this was Patty McCord, who's still a friend of yours, HR uh, partner at that point. You're head of head HR. Of HR sure. uh, um, and you'd actually commute together. You'd pick her up and drive together and talk about the company process. Was she as engaged as you were in these problems? Oh, absolutely. Um, not only her, but also our Netflix co-founder, Mark Randolph. So there were lots of us trying to think through you know, what makes a sustained and substantial company, what kind of things, you know? And so that's what we've been trying, especially a creative company. Yeah. So then uh, for us, it's trying to figure out what those principles are. And then, you know, we learn as we go. One of the things that we get critiqued about, and there's some concern about, and even in your book, when you talk about it, I definitely felt myself get a little tense, is the keeper uh, test. Mm-hmm. And this, this general idea, well, why don't you tell me what the keeper test is? Sure. I mean, the general idea that we have at work is it can be hard to get hired, but once you get hired, you're in. And if you don't screw up badly, then, you know, you get to keep the job. The job's like a piece of property, which you can lose if you screw up. Okay. And there's another model, which is like professional sports. So if you've got 11 players on the field and you want to win a championship, the only chance you have of winning is if every single player is extraordinary. And so when you think about professional sports, we realize that's kind of more what we wanted, which is we were willing to trade some job security to get peer excellence. That the thing that really motivated us is that how amazing and consistently great our peers were, that they were great professional uh, performers. And so to do that, you have to operate more like a professional sports team where you're evaluated, you know, every season or every game, you're paid well. Um, and, you know, if you're cut from a team, it's definitely a bummer, but there's no shame in it. I mean, you went out and tried as hard as you could and, you know, that's great. There was and, someone else there that was better for the team. That's right. You yeah. know, or, or so the coach thought, I can't guarantee it. Yeah. At one point you had this conversation with Patty and you actually let her go. In the book, she's a f- fundamentally a giant part of how the company was formed, really influential. I'm sure there's been other people in the same way that have been important to you throughout the process, throughout important Netflix the whole process. Letting her go, there's something about it that feels harsh, like letting go of a friend. Did you feel that way when you were talking about it with her? Did she feel that way? Did you talk about it? Sure. I felt conflicted in that way because, you know, I liked her. But we both knew that, you know, my primary responsibility has to be to the company. And I thought we would perform better if we changed heads of HR. 
And, uh, you know, I still think that was the right decision. Did it turn out to be true? Was it, has it been a lot uh, of growth? Yes, yeah. I think so. It's, it's um, made a big difference. And then she's, um, you know, become a great speaker on the circuit and has had a great life too. But again, you know, it's not about who your friends are and protecting your friends. And that's a, like a very political way to run a company as opposed to trying to be as, as good faith and honest a judge as you can. Yeah. And our overall turnover rate is quite modest. It's around, you know, this is both people leaving and people let go, um, like other companies yeah. that are around, you know, 8%, 9% per year. Aaron does a great job of comparing that in the chapter of Vethis. Yeah, yeah, yeah to, to it's others. pretty low. So it yeah. doesn't really um, change the overall thing. But, you know, we do talk about Keeper Test and being like a professional sports team. And it's not right for everybody. Yeah. Again, if someone's primary emotional North Star that they want is job security, then we're not the right place. And if your primary motivator is peer excellence, because you know you'll learn the most, do the best work, have the most fun, then we're great. You say that it's about what's important to the company, you kind of referred to that. And, and in that same vein, you talk to your board openly about it's reminding them that if you're not the best CEO, they might want to find somebody else. If tomorrow they go, yeah, sorry, you got to step down, what would that feel like? Well, I would feel like that we've inculcated the culture and the board in a really strong way. You feel um, success from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, it can be disappointing, but yeah, again, the belief system, I think, will get to the best results, which is it's about performance. It's about thinking about that in a serious way. Yeah. It's not like, okay, you had one bad day, you're out or anything. You know, it's... Again, if you go back to athletics, you can have a bad game, sometimes even a bad season. But if they believe in your potential for the next year, they keep you on. So it's all about what they see in the future potential. As an IC, I don't feel fearful of losing my job and actually have this kind of experience of after I mess up, because we all do, and I you know, talk about it, which is one of the things you talk about in the book, is sunlighting our failures to really make sure we all grow from them, because learning is what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. I normally have a boost of energy about it. This is odd, and it, that wasn't like that for me in the beginning, but I definitely feel that. Do you feel that way when you screw up now and get good feedback that changes how you do things? Does it energize you? Yeah, and to a degree, because I think all of us thrive on learning and improving, and uh, it helps that everyone else uh, is a good role model of that. Okay, I want to talk about why we went global. That was a hard thing to do. And in fact, in the, the last chapter of the book, that's a big thing you talk about is that we did everything in the, in the Americas, if you will, and then as we went global, had to change. Why did you decide? Why did we decide? Why did you put the North Star of global? You know, my first company, uh, Pure Software, that we talked about was fully global. We sold software all over the world. Yeah. I love the world. You know, I've been fortunate to travel very broadly. So the fact that we were DVD by mail held us back because the mail systems are quite different in different countries. But once we were in streaming, it was completing the natural thing, which is internet companies, you know, if you think about YouTube, they're global from day one. That's the normal state. Okay, and we just we had some catch up to do because of our heritage. So it was the DVD heritage, correct? Uh So it was always part of our model that you know we were going to be offering great content all around the world. So even though global was a plan from the early stages, what did you see that was surprising as we went global? That it was just so much fun. It was you know when we're able to open our offices around the world and welcome, you know, all these different perspectives, both about how to run a business, but also about the particular content, what shows work, 
you know, well in um, Germany versus India. And so I've gotten to spend now a lot of time with the texture of, of each country and their entertainment taste. And it's thrilling to, to learn that. Maybe the surprising thing is just how unique tastes are around the world. How did Netflix culture evolve? What changes did you have to implement to change our culture to, to meet the different global needs? Well, we're constantly evolving. <clears throat> our culture is not a fixed thing. And the contribution of our Latin American, uh, European, African, Asian colleagues has been substantial. And in particular, as an example, in many Asian cultures, there's a deference to parents and a reluctance to critique elders. And so it can feel very uncomfortable to do an open sharing session and everyone gives each other feedback. And unless you slow that down a little, explain why we do it, it would be the equivalent in, in California is if people were yelling at each other. Um, that's what it feels so, like. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, so then we made some adjustments in how we prepare people and talk it through. And sometimes it'll be in writing and, and so that we can accommodate the cultural norms. You know, we're still getting the quality of the feedback. Still having the same effect, but not doing it in this abrasive way. The cultures don't clash. So does that mean that people that are uh, working in cultures that they're not from and engaging with people from different cultures have to train themselves on that difference? Sure. Like in the States, when we give feedback, we usually say something nice, then we say the real thing, and then we follow it with something nice. Yeah. And we think like, well, that's how everybody does it. No. You know, the Dutch are like totally direct. They're like, don't waste the time with the nice stuff. Right. So the they, nice stuff They feels... see it as totally insincere. Yeah. Okay. So it's just you learn these cultural habits, and until you know that other cultures have a bunch of equally valid adaptations to how to give feedback and you can meet each other halfway... It takes a little while to get used to each other. Yeah. Has that been a good experience learning these things? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the world's uh, such a uh, interesting and fascinating place of all the different styles. And yeah. this is Erin's first book. The culture map is really about that. That's what actually it attracted you to talking to her and inviting her in, right? Yeah, what attracted me and Aaron is first reading her book, which was tremendous, uh, The Culture Map, about four or five years ago. And then uh, I reached out to her, and um, we got together in Paris, where she lives, and just started talking about what might be her second book. I'm excited, personally, about seeing the content from these other areas. Dark was a fantastic show from Germany. Sure. Did you know that that was going to be something that was a side effect of us going global, that we would be having these connections across the globe with content? If you look at the challenges that larger companies have around the world, they have to really, to be successful, have to take the interests of each country at heart. So for us, it's about how do we strengthen Spanish culture? How do we strengthen uh, Indian culture, Brazilian culture, Thai culture? And by doing that, it's local productions that then we can share with the world, as opposed to simply be an exploiter or a Hollywood to the world kind of company. So from very early on, we were wanting to make it a community of nations and artists, you know, sharing great stories for the whole world. Did you and Ted talk about that early on? Yeah, absolutely. And Ted Sarandos runs our content group, and we've been together for 20 years. So it's been a phenomenal partnership. What have you learned from Ted Sarandos uh, the most? What, what's, what have you, what's rubbed off on you? Uh, you know, he certainly broadened my content taste back in maybe... 2000, 2001, we went to Sundance together and it, 
at that time we had no money and we were, you know, it was a pre-IPO and, um, you know, we were sleeping on someone's floor and trying to scam tickets to get in to, you know, see different Sundance films and talk about them and... Were you, were you purchasing it? You weren't buying stuff? No, 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 no. We were like, just you know, it. 20 bucks for a ticket was yeah. like the thing. And, um, and you know, Ted had worked in a video store for a number of years and for Blockbuster. And, like, he has watched everything. He's, in, he's got an encyclopedia. So he's so much fun to see films with because he's like, oh, that's what that reference is to this and that. And I didn't know that much of that. So Have you gotten <clears> better at your film and, and TV lore being a CEO of Netflix? I, I have, but as the company's grown, we've been exposed to people that are unbelievable at it. So I would say my my relative competence has declined sure. because it's like we have so many people who are just beautiful experts in uh, you, you know, Polish it. cinema <laughs> or dark Scandinavian noir. And so it's been great to see all the expertise develop. With all these experts around you and talking about film and TV and stuff, what do you, how do you decide what you're going to watch? You know, I've relaxed and just enjoying what I enjoy. And, you know, so I'm watching the Formula One Drive to Survive right now. I just watched uh, Love is Blind. Uh, unbelievable. So kind of classic drama things. Yeah. Okay. And with family? Uh, some of the time I'll watch with my wife. Kids are grown yeah. um, and, and out of the home. And uh, my wife and I will watch like The Crown or certain things together. But uh, a lot of the time we're traveling. Is there ever a time when you're sitting watching like The Crown with your wife or something and maybe you're traveling, you're not watching for a while and come back and you go, oh, I wish the product did this. And you have an instinct to be a controlling figure. You know, there's a lot of times I've had ideas of something and then uh, sometimes I'll ask the product team to test it. And it used to be back uh, maybe the first 10 years of Netflix, I could pretty reliably win. So I was better than the product managers at guessing, or at least as good. And well, then, at least that's what you think? Well, no, the test results would win. Okay, okay. Good. Okay, so... It's good win. So, but I would say in the last five years, I hardly ever win. Um, <laughs> and I sort of then I participate last because, I mean, and I shouldn't because they're like living the customer experience every day and the edge of the internet and they can reliably out intuit me in terms of uh, what customers will respond to. So the book is basically a pitch to, if you're going to innovate, if the company's an innovation company, not making sure trains are safe, right? Innovating, fast learning, lots of failures. If you're in that space, here's a handbook on how to run a company. Is it something that some that a company can do? Let's say there's a company about you know 7,000 employees. They've been running for 20 years. They've been doing the control methodology, even though they're more of a creative shop. What would you do if you were put in CEO of that company? How would you actually implement this book? You know, it's tough to figure out. We'll get to see how many large companies um, would say that they were affected by the book. Just by publishing the culture memo on the internet over the last 10 years, I've had numbers and numbers of small companies say how impactful it is and how they're doing some of that and, and making it better. Um, but not many large companies. They tend to pass it around as like a stimulating item to talk about at some offsite as opposed to actually change a practice. Because there's a lot of practices you have to change. Yeah, and they're intertwined. You know, it's hard to run with freedom and responsibility unless you're really clear about your values and you have high performance and you're good at setting context. So like any ecosystem, it grows up with a set of forces and you got to get a lot of those forces right. You can't just take one aspect of it. Where do you think the sweet spot of a size of a company or the space of a company is to take on this kind of change and run business differently? What what size? Like a 10-person shop or like mm, a... I'd say under 500. Okay. Under 500 is pretty small. Where you kind of get people in You the still room. know every single... You can name every single person. Mm -hmm. You know, that it's certainly viable. And probably it's the skill of the leader. They're probably leaders 
that are so skilled that they can make those changes at 20,000 people. Are you hoping that the staff uh, read the book? Um, sure. But again, they've got the inside version, the reality. <clears throat> so, I mean, uh, they may enjoy it. But, you know, the book is really written to be approachable for outsiders. Yeah. Whereas internally, there's, uh, you know, a constantly updating version called the Culture Memo that, you know, is more accurate, doesn't have the stories, so it's not as entertaining, but it's sort of the cutting edge of the theory as we learn various aspects. Yeah. I think employees will enjoy it, uh, but again, it probably would be more help for candidates than it will be for employees. We have uh, values listed out in the Culture Deck as well, and I want to know, is there a value that you find challenging for yourself? No, I think there are all things that I work on, you know, trying to be the best leader, you know, that you can. Um, so, so they're all challenging or? Yeah, they're definitely all challenging and all something that you can improve on. Judgment is one. And, you know, I'm constantly learning, oh, that was a bad judgment. And you sort of refine your judgment of what are the forces at play. How do you check what error in judgment you actually made? How do you figure that out? You know, really just debate with a senior staff of, you know, is this an example of not listening or is this an example of overconfidence or is this an, uh, one of waiting, you know, some factors too high and others not enough. So you use your colleagues to help bounce ideas of what might have gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. Sort of a trial and error process. Yeah. What was the experience like after Quickster? Well, it, in Quickster, um, we were a DVD plus streaming business. It was one service. Yeah. And this was the idea to separate into two services um, and while doing that, do a 60% price increase uh, for 20 million families in the middle of a recession in, in 11. And so in hindsight, it was crazy. But um, the, the basic underlying idea, which is separate DVD and streaming, was right. And that's worked out very well. You know, we've got 170 million streamers and we've got, you know, 2 million DVD households. You know, it, it really was... That part was smart. The bad part was the price increase. Was the was the split important because you wanted to focus? You wanted the company to be focused on streaming? Is that why the instinct was there? Yeah, I think I would say a different brand property. So on DVD, you can get every title, all the HBO titles, all movies, right. but it's slow delivery. Right. Okay. And on uh, the streaming, you could get a subset of titles, but you could get as much as you want right now, and it was instant. So the name change would be helpful if I said, oh, last night I watched blah, blah, blah on Netflix, and you go up on streaming and don't find it. It feels like a miss. Yeah. That kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So you, and, you know, we wanted the future to be Netflix to be streaming. But you asked, you know, how did it feel? It felt uh, humiliating to have screwed up. So, you know, we did this mega price increase. Customers hated it, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, the number of customers fell. Stock price dropped 70%. A lot of bad press. Well-deserved. And so it just, you know, it felt humiliating, felt shameful that I had done this to the thing I love. And in, in looking and inspecting and talking about it, you found out that people weren't telling you that they didn't think it was a good idea people around you. Yeah, I mean, um, we were not nearly as good as we are today at farming for dissent. Um, post that, we What really, does farming for dissent mean? Yeah, post the Quickster episode, what we really did is um, set in a really explicit practice of, you know, when you're making decisions, it's really good to get everyone to write down their view of which way you should go. You know, either like a super good idea, marginal, you know, not sure, or this is a disaster, you know, and explain why. And that by forcing everyone to write that down around the big decisions and then be able to go back afterwards and look at them, there's a lot of learning that happens. 
and including if we had had that practice in place, which is a process, right? So we should come to that, but it's a process around supporting better and faster decisions that then we would have modified the plan, I'm sure, because it would have teased out that most people thought it was a really bad idea. The book is titled No Rules, Rules. And you just mentioned that we kind of have a process that's pretty clear about farming for dissent. That's kind of a rule, right? Yeah, we have process around getting together and having meetings and doing quarterly results. And so think of good process as things that help you stay coordinated so you can get more done. And bad process is what tries to prevent error. Farming for dissent is kind of about trying to reduce error, right? Well, it's trying to make the best decisions, so you could call that reducing error, but it's trying to get a broad information, trying to trying to really draw out the best thinking. And the other thing that's important when talking about this, and I think it's the next, next paragraph in talking about this, is that this is not consensus building. This is a human being deciding what the best thing to do and making sure that human being has as much information as possible to make that decision. Why are we so centered on making sure that individuals are empowered to make decisions? Why is that important? Well, I think without it, what you get is sort of committee decision or some loose, uncomfortable consensus, and there's not a point of who makes that decision. So we try to have most decisions made by an informed captain, someone who's trying to absorb all the relevant information and then make a decision. But why is that better than a group of four people coming up with a conclusion and writing a paragraph down? You know, for some things like uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a group of nine, and that may be better for that situation. Our decisions tend to be lower stakes, and so, you know, it's a single individual. So it's because the decisions are not massively impactful for a nation. It's about what show we might have, or it's about where we might go next. Sure. Another example is, you know, for the board to replace me, which is would be a big decision. That's just a majority of the board. It's not a single person. Right, right. So okay. some, yeah. That's right. So, you know, you're balancing sort of robustness and against, you know, quickness and accountability. If you had just one suggestion for someone that might take on our culture, what value should they definitely have if they were to take this book and actually try to implement it at their company? That's recommendations for a value for a leader. Probably sincerity. If you're definitely motivated to try to make a great organization, as opposed to uh, make some money or get an ego gratification, but if you fundamentally want a healthy organization and you're sincere about that, then, you know, you can embrace a lot of this work and you'll make some mistakes along the way, but people will forgive you those and you'll figure the thing out. So you think of the industrial, uh, you know, a lot of our resources in industrial revolution kind of space. You talked about control problems and stuff. We're in this age of early internet still, I think maybe. If you have some prediction qualities, what are we looking at for maybe a next shift in business or another way of thinking about how the world will shift in that kind of large epoch? Well, I would say the epoch of uh, creativity and invention, you know, has been always a part of the economy. It's just now it's a growing part. But there will still be, um, you know, a lot of manufacturing going on, a lot of safety critical things going on. So, you know, yes, this part is growing, but it's not really replacing the old. Do you think there's another space besides those two that will be important? It could well be. I mean, I'm sure if you look at it closely enough, there's a bunch of subspaces of what, you know, I've divided the world up into error reduction, you know, to avoid problems and embracing trial and error, which is how you learn. And, you know, there's probably a more nuanced 
splitting of that as the economies continue to grow. As you've become more an expert, Netflix become more an expert of actually making content and making films and television. Do you, what do you see in that space? Is there more control that versus, versus maybe software development? What what's the difference in those spaces? Well, it's a lot of similarity to how venture capital works. So venture capital puts in, you know, 10 to 100 million to a team to pull off a set of ideas that are sort of sketchy. Um, and <laughs> That's e- every new show and every series, every film is that way too. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're backing a vision, <clears throat> going to put in a bunch of money. And then if enough of them work out, then, you know, you're, you've done a good job in allocating capital um, and in backing, you know, these creative dreams of uh, different artists. What do you think about this era where we are the forerunner on streaming? Well, YouTube was the forerunner uh, in streaming. Um, they started in August 2005. We didn't start till 2007. They were global before us. Today, they're about seven times more hours of viewing. So, uh, you know, we've never been the leader unless you like narrowly call it like films or something. But right. if you think about it as uh, video entertainment, they've always been way ahead of us. And of course, it's free and, you know, it has some types of content and then we have other types. And, you know, now, of course, uh, you know, Hulu's been around for 12 or 13 years. Um, Amazon's competed with us. And then, you know, it's adding in now Disney and Peacock and others. And, and is it concerning for you or is it, what does it feel, what does it feel like? No, it's really focusing, which is we have to please our members. And the big task is, you know, avoiding sort of competitive focus. Just because we grow doesn't mean people are going to love, you know, Disney more or less any more than if we grow, they're going to love, you know, football more or less. You know, these are yeah. different entertainment centers. And what we should do is just focus on how do we please our members. Normally, we close the podcast by asking what you've watched, but you've already told us. So, where have you traveled lately that was amazing? I did a great tour of Latin America to uh, launch some of our shows, and we've got a number of new shows in Peru. And it was my first time in Lima, uh, and I got to go to one of the chef's table restaurants, uh, uh, Cristal. Was it good? Amazing, amazing. One of the best <laughs> I meals hope you ever. Your wife. No, no, no. no, no. no. All, oh, all, all yeah. uh, Netflix crew. Okay, um, well, that's good too. So. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, Lima's an amazing city. We're thrilled to be growing in Peru. Yeah. Well, thank you, Reed Hastings, for joining me on We Are Netflix. Great pleasure, Lyle. Thanks. We Are Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxel. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We Are Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com. <laughs>